service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock-a-rolla. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Diego Maradona are insane. He turned a soccer match into a weapon during a centuries-long war between England and Argentina. His blood was stolen by nurses and treated like a sacred relic. He was associated with one of the biggest and oldest organized crime families in Italy. He was busted for drugs, busted for prostitution. He shot at reporters with an air rifle. And somehow, he still showed up the next day and played a great game. Diego Maradona was part of some of the greatest sports moments of all time. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great sports moment. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called What's Good for Goose is Good for the Dander. MK1. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to the thrilling victory in the 110th Kentucky Derby. And why would I play you that specific slice of big-hatted, too-many-mint juleps run for the roses cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was one of the biggest moments in sports on May 5th, 1984. And that was the day that Diego Maradona triggered one of the biggest and most vicious brawls in recorded sports history. On this episode, soccer as a weapon, drugs, prostitution, stolen blood, organized crime, and Diego Maradona. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 6, Sportsland. Diego Maradona weaved his way around the English defense, pirouetting down the pitch with his shoulders straight and his chest puffed proudly. At five foot five, he looked more like a horse jockey than a soccer player, but he moved with the grace of a gazelle and the ferociousness of a wolverine. The other team just couldn't keep up. Maradona dashed towards the goal, looking for an opening where his Argentinian teammate could make the pass. He got so far down the pitch that he should have been off sides, but the ball ricocheted off another English player, so it switched possession in mid-flight, and Maradona was ready for it. 
Alone in the penalty box, he saw the keeper coming towards him. The two players jumped into the air right as the ball crested and began to fall. This British bastard had a full eight inches over Maradona, but the stocky Argentinian could practically fly. He arched his head back, raising his left fist beside him like some triumphant uppercut slicing through the wind, and punched the ball into the goal. If you know anything at all about soccer, you know you're not supposed to use your hands, especially not in the final game of a World Cup championship. But miraculously, the refs didn't see it. It just looked like a headbutt to them. So they called the goal for Argentina, despite the protest from the English team. Maradona smiled as he watched the scoreboard change. La mano de Dios, he said. It was the hand of God. A few minutes later, he made a 60-yard dash with five wankers guarding him at once and scored another goal, winning the 1986 World Cup for Argentina. Maradona carried his team to victory that day, but it was more than just a game. It was justice and retribution, the latest salvo in a centuries-long war against the colonial elite. In the early 1800s, the British Empire tried to conquer the Argentine capital of Buenos Aires several times. In 1833, they came for Islas Malvinas, an archipelago off the country's Atlantic coast. They claimed the land as their own, and they called it the Falkland Islands. The Argentinians did not like this, but they couldn't do much to stop it. The relationship between the countries soured even more after a bad trade agreement in the 1930s. The United Nations tried to mediate the tensions in the 1960s, but the sovereignty of the Falkland Islands was still up for debate. This is right around the time that Diego Maradona was born. He was raised in a slum on the outskirts of Buenos Aires by a father who came from the indigenous Guarani people and a mother descended from Southern Italian immigrant workers. They lived in a shack made from cardboard and scrap metal with dirt for a floor and reeds for a roof. His parents didn't struggle to keep the lights on. They were too poor to afford lights. Soccer was Maradona's only escape from shantytown life. He spent all his free time honing his footwork in a way that defied the rules of traditional training. His movement was unrefined, but also unpredictable. A unique athletic creole made even more amazing by his short, stocky stature. He was an underdog in every way. At 15, Maradona dropped out of school and signed an exclusive contract with the local professional soccer club, the Argentinos Juniors. He was the youngest player in the history of the league. Soon he became the primary breadwinner for his family. Crowds swarmed the stadium to see him in action and make some money placing bets on whatever wild move he pulled this time. After five years, he moved to another Argentine club, the Boca Juniors. And then everything changed. Nothing was ever the same. In 1982, just as Maradona was preparing to play his first World Cup tournament, Argentina's military invaded the Falkland Islands hoping to reclaim the colonized land. Argentinian national pride was high, for a few weeks anyway. But the country's scrappy armed forces were no match for the British Empire. Argentina faced a humiliating defeat. This was an eye-opening moment for Maradona. It awakened his awareness of the world's injustices, of colonial oppression and fascist propaganda. And yeah, when he punched that ball into the goal four years later in a match against England, Maradona was technically cheating. But as far as he and half the global south were concerned, England had been cheating for a long, long time. It was only fair. Maradona had just given them a taste of their own medicine. England crushed them in the war, 
but Argentina won where it really counted, on the soccer pitch. Shortly after the Falklands War, Maradona was sold overseas to play for Barcelona. It was the most expensive trade in professional soccer history at the time. Though Barcelona is technically in Spain, it's also part of Catalonia, an autonomous region that's had its own struggles with sovereignty. In other words, it was the perfect place for Maradona to cement his international reputation as a champion for the oppressed, a man whose only weapon was a soccer ball. The Barcelona team had a long-standing rivalry with Athletic Bilbao, who saw a major threat in Maradona. During one match, Athletic centre-back, affectionately known as the Butcher of Bilbao, got so mad at the thought of losing to a filthy low-class indigenous Argentinian that he slide-tackled Maradona from behind with his studs up. Maradona's ankle snapped like a twig. The injury sidelined him for months. But that wasn't even the worst of it. The tension between the teams continued to boil. It came to a head at the 1984 Cup Finals in Madrid. 100,000 screaming fans in the stadium. But not just regular soccer fans, royalty, the King of Spain himself. During the kickoff, Barcelona's fans booed the Spanish national anthem. It should have been a powerful moment of Catalonian national pride, but one athletic player used the noise as a cover to taunt Maradona. How's that ankle feeling? Be ashamed if something happened to it. As the game got underway, Maradona saw him coming from the corner of his eye. The butcher. Shoulders slunk down low and aimed like a bull's horn. He ran straight into Maradona and tackled him. Maradona hit the ground with a thud and rolled over on his back. He looked up to see the sneering center back standing right above him. The butcher lifted his leg up in the air, threatening to flatten Maradona's face into the turf. That was all he needed. The butcher saw the fear in Maradona's eyes. He'd made his point that he laughed like a madman and then spit on the ground next to Maradona's face. Pathetic coward. Maradona was pissed and embarrassed, but mostly pissed. He tried to keep his cool, at least until the end of the match. The whistle blew and the refs declared that Athletic had won the cup with a score of 1-0. As the bummed out Barcelona team skulked back to the locker room, Bilbao's midfielder called out after Maradona, goading him with the racial slurs that dug into his heritage. Maradona heard the words. He stopped dead in his tracks. He spun around and leapt three feet through the air, kneeing that motherfucker right in the face while still in mid-flight. The bastard was unconscious before the blood even gushed from his nose. His teammates retaliated, lunging at Maradona, who immediately erupted into a flurry of lo-fi kung fu kicks. Luckily for Maradona, his teammates had his back. They sprung into action beside him, and within seconds, the entire pitch was a massive street fight. Bodies were pummeled and beaten and tossed around. It didn't take long for the fans and the riot cops to charge the field and join the violent fray too. But when the brawl was over, more than 60 people were injured. And the entire time, the King of Spain just sat there and watched from his seat safely in the stands, knowing full well that the whole shameful ruckus started because some fucking renegade from Argentina refused to be put in his place. The sleek Italian motorcycle pulled up to the back door of the apartment building. The engine idled, 
purring while the helmeted driver in his ominous black leather garb waited for his passenger. Without a word, he motioned for Diego Maradona to hop on the back. The Maradona barely had a chance to grab on anything before the driver peeled off into the narrow streets of Naples. The bike weaved along brick alleyways, avoiding streetlights and restaurants, avoiding any populated place where they might be seen. Because Diego Maradona could no longer move around freely. His notoriety wasn't just because he played so well. He received a three-month ban from the Spanish League for sparking that riot in Madrid. He'd become a liability for Barcelona. His skills on the pitch weren't enough to make up for his impulsiveness or all the practices he missed after staying up all night partying. Instead of benching him, the team sold him off to Naples, and the city in southern Italy had a reputation for poverty, filth, and crime. The people who lived there were constantly mocked by their lighter-skinned neighbors to the north. Other Italians called them the shame of the nation. But that kind of underdog attitude suited Diego Maradona perfectly. And the motorcycle pulled to a stop at a dimly lit loading dock, and the driver motioned for Maradona to get off. A pair of industrial doors swung open, metal staircase inside. It led up to a candlelit dining table overflowing with a fine Italian feast. Armed men in suits guarded every door. The man at the table stood and welcomed Maradona. Come in, come in, make yourself at home. Maradona didn't have to be from Italy to know who this guy was. Carmine Giuliano, part of the Camorra, a boss for one of the city's oldest and biggest crime families. Maradona walked cautiously up the staircase and took a seat across from the gangster. There was a gun propped up next to his chair. Giuliano told Maradona he could have it if he wanted it, because they took care of people in Naples, especially their heroes. Any problem Maradona had was their problem, and anything he wanted, anywhere he wanted to go, could be arranged. The crime boss never asked Maradona for anything. He didn't have to. Maradona's presence alone was enough for the Camorra to make millions on black market sports betting. There were also the tourists who would come to the city to watch him play. Tourists needed things while they visited. Food, hotels, drugs, sex. Every industry the Camorra had their hands in. They were all better off when Maradona was in town. Did Napoli's organized crime front the cash for Maradona's contract? Is that how a mediocre soccer club on the verge of being relegated into a weaker division could afford the biggest soccer player in the world? One reporter asked a question during Maradona's first press conference, and the team's owner immediately shut the conversation down. After all, you're not supposed to question miracles. And even in the famously Catholic city of Naples, where the dried blood of a long-dead saint turns to liquid three times a year, Maradona was indeed a miracle. His own blood was treated like a sacred relic. Nurses stole vials to stash in local churches and cathedrals. To this day, there's still a coffee shop that keeps a lock of his hair on display. But despite all that religious fervor, Maradona was hardly a saint. Back in Barcelona, he picked up a cocaine habit and in Naples it bloomed into a full-blown problem, thanks in no small part to his enablers in organized crime. Celebrity friends bestowed a special kind of status, and nothing made them feel more powerful than partying with the Diego Maradona. With their help, Maradona kept a tight and regimented schedule. Every Sunday through Wednesday, get good and fucked up, follow that with a two-day cleanse before matches on the weekend. Next week, do it all over again. Maradona's teammates didn't like the fact that he kept missing practice, but he made up for it on the pitch. And they couldn't stay mad for long because, well, they couldn't win without him. 
His teammates weren't the only ones that needed Maradona. He was starting a family with his longtime fiance, Claudia Viafanier. They'd been together since back in Buenos Aires when she was a teen and he was still a rising star. So you can imagine her surprise when, nearing the end of her first trimester, she turned on the TV and saw another woman, Cristiana Sinagra, telling the Italian press that she'd just given birth to Maradona's son. Maradona played dumb when he got home that night. But of course, she knew the truth. He'd been introduced to Cristiana through a friend, and they'd been sleeping together for a while before she told him she was pregnant. A small piece of Maradona feared that Camorra had put her up to it, that they wanted some insurance they could use against him. He was at the height of his fame, terrified of being torn down, or worse, ending up back in the shantytown he escaped all those years ago. So Maradona publicly denied that the kid was his. And six months later, when he and his fiance, Claudia Viafanier, welcomed their first child, he made sure the media knew that this new, legitimate offspring was the only one who really counted. Just like his teammates, the public was willing to forgive Maradona's transgressions as long as he delivered the glory of victory. Maradona's first year with the Naples team was the best it had in years. By 1987, he carried them to their first Italian Cup championship, sticking up yet another metaphorical middle finger to the established power structures. The team finished second in each of the next two seasons and then took the cup again in 1990, with Maradona scoring the most goals almost every time. Maradona didn't just make miracles on the pitch either. When he first arrived in the city, he declared, I want to be the idol of the poor kids of Naples because they're just like me as a youngster in Via Fiorito. Plenty of soccer players came from poverty and did charity work in their communities. But for Maradona, it was more than that. It was personal. He tried to convince the team's owners to let him use the stadium to host a fundraiser for a local kid with cancer. They refused, it was too expensive, and there were plenty of other charity PR opportunities that were a much lighter lift. So Maradona struck out on his own, organizing a match on the dirt field next to the sick kid's house. Thousands came out and donated, just so they could watch Maradona on a scrappy pitch like the one he learned to play on in his youth. In 1990, it was Italy's turn to host the World Cup. Though Naples had become his new adopted home, Maradona decided to play for his birthplace of Argentina. Normally, this would have been fine on all sides, no hard feelings or anything. Players did this all the time. But things took a turn in the semifinals. Italy had knocked out Uruguay and Ireland, while Argentina tackled both Brazil and Yugoslavia, leaving Maradona's two home countries to face off in the third round. And just his luck, the match was scheduled to take place in Naples, of all places. The start of the match was surprisingly cordial. The home turf Italians didn't even jeer at the Argentine national anthem. But the match dragged on, and soon that piece was put to the test. As the clock ticked up past 90 minutes, the teams were tied with one goal each. Even after a half hour of overtime, they were still caught in a draw. The match moved into penalty kicks. The two teams moved back and forth, each one landing three penalty goals. At the start of the fourth round of penalty kicks, Italy's midfielder finally missed a shot, and that's when Diego Maradona stepped up to the line. The 60,000 people in the stands held their collective breath. Maradona looked around the silent stadium, reading the signs from the local supporters' club. Naples loves you, Maradona, but Italy is our homeland, one of them read. Diego in our hearts, Italy in our songs, read another. Maradona realized that he had a choice to make. He could win the match for the land of his birth by making the shot, or he could miss and win for his new adopted home where his children now lived. 
He glanced down at the black and white ball between his feet. He took a deep breath. And then, without another thought, he kicked the ball straight into the goal. The crowd went nuts. Maradona's teammates swarmed around him, hugging and cheering and howling in triumph. But as they celebrated, Maradona felt that something was off. He couldn't put his finger on it. They just won the semifinals, so why did he have this sinking feeling in the pit of his stomach? The crowd's chaotic roar began to shift in his ears. This was no longer a triumphant cheer. It was something else. The voices began to gel into a singular, cohesive chorus. One word, three syllables, the rhythm stabbed Maradona's ears. Lucifer, Lucifer, Lucifer. As far as the Italians were concerned, the hand of God had just revealed himself to be the devil in disguise. Diego Maradona took another sip of wine as he brought the hotel room phone to his ear. He had questions. One, could he get two girls at this hour? And two, could they send a car to pick him up? The woman on the other end of the phone had two quick answers, yes and yes. Naples' biggest and oldest crime family was at his service. They could get him whatever he wanted. Just like Carmine Giuliano had promised out on the docks. The driver would be there in a half an hour. Then, she asked if there was anything else she could help with. Maradona looked down at the clock. Over at the narrow line of cocaine laid out on the bedstand, it was all that he had left. It was 3.30 in the morning, but he knew he'd need another bump before he hit the brothel. Maybe the woman there would want some too. You got any dust? He asked the woman on the phone. Maybe the girls would like to share with me. The receptionist said she could probably arrange something. Then the receptionist asked in favor of him. This is Maradona, right? The Maradona? Her son was a huge fan. He was there with her right now. Would Maradona be willing to say hello? Maradona was taken aback. This is the first time he'd ever spoken to the receptionist for an organized crime family to order a pair of prostitutes in the middle of the night and ended up talking with a little kid. But he went along with it. You know, anything for the kids. Of course, the eager young kid immediately asked what had gone wrong in the team's last match. Fuck. Maradona just wanted to get laid. He told the kid it was just bad luck. He didn't feel like rehashing the details of last week's embarrassing loss, especially to a little kid hanging out at a brothel with his mom. But it wasn't just a little kid listening to what Diego Maradona had to say. The police were also listening in on the line. It was just about six months since Maradona scored that winning penalty kick for Argentina, knocking the Italian team out of the World Cup championships at his own home turf in Naples. It turned out the Lucifer chants were just the beginning. The hand of God had betrayed the Italian people and the wound had cut them too deeply to heal. They were no longer willing to turn a blind eye to Maradona's lascivious lifestyle. He'd humiliated the country on the international circuit. And like all sinners, he would suffer or repent. Soon enough, tabloids turned on him too, printing more smears about his illegitimate children, both the one he'd had with Christiana Sinagra and another one with another woman that he just learned about. The Italian courts got their revenge, declaring that Maradona would be officially recognized as the father of Christiana's child. Even though he refused to take a DNA test, he was now legally responsible for all child support obligations to young Diego Sinagra. Meanwhile, 
The police used that tap phone call to nab him, not just on possession charges, but since he offered powder to the prostitutes, distribution as well. He was slapped with a 14-month suspended sentence, and this was after he had already suffered another institutional punishment from the Italian Soccer League, who benched him for 15 months over his cocaine use during games. All of this because Maradona won a World Cup game. No good deed goes unpunished. Maradona saw the flashing lights in the rearview mirror. The car dealer told him that his new Porsche convertible could go up to 162 miles per hour. And what better time than now to put it to the test? He grinned madly and pressed the pedal to the floor. And the engine's purr grew into a soft, low growl. He watched the speedometer tick upwards. 110, 112, 115, 120. Another Spanish cop car was on him now. But this one wasn't behind him. This one pulled into the street directly in front of him, came out of nowhere. It was blocking his path, and the only way out was through. And Maradona really didn't want to smash another sports car, and that left him with one option, surrender. Instead of enduring his suspension from the Italian league over the drug issues and the prostitutes, a disgraced Maradona let himself get traded to Seville back in Spain. At least then he could keep playing. His first few months on the bench had already led to some weight gain and even greater drug dependency. One night, he was so wasted that he smashed up his Mercedes in the city center. And not long after, the authorities nabbed him for doing 120 through a red light in that silver Porsche Carrera. After less than a year, Seville wanted nothing to do with Maradona either. In fact, it seemed like no one wanted him at all, except his home country. He'd blown his European career by trying to advance the Argentinian national team, so the least they could do was bring him back home. Maradona wound up back in Buenos Aires with the Boca Juniors, the same team he had played for 15 years earlier. Maybe there, on his home turf, Maradona could finally recover his last shred of glory. At the very least, it'd be nice if the local media would stop making fun of him because he got fat. But even though he was out of shape, Maradona could still play the game, and he busted his ass to make sure he qualified for the next World Cup in 1994. After several years of scandal and shame, the world was ready for Maradona to make his miraculous comeback. And all the bets were up in Argentina's favor. The cheers from the crowd were deafening during Argentina's first World Cup match that year. After an hour on the pitch, Maradona caught a pass in the middle of the arc, some 20 yards away from the goal. Four defensive players buzzed around him in a circle, but even that was not enough to stop Maradona. He did a brief dance, dribbled the ball between his feet, then swiftly cocked his leg back and sent the ball over everyone's heads and straight into the net. The other team's goalie barely even tried to stop it. He knew he was powerless to get in the way of one of Maradona's miracles. The footage from this match is wonderful. Maradona is ecstatic and proud, running celebratory circles on the pitch like an overeager puppy dog, howling as he runs toward the TV cameras just to rub it in. His face zooms in close to the screen, mouth agape, the word goal on his lips. And then he spins off to the side just in time before he would have crashed into the camera crew. It's a beautiful moment of pure joy, the kind of thing you'd cast in amber if you could. In the movie version of Maradona's life, it's the perfect time to fade to black. He did it. The hand of God returned to glory once again. But in real life, the story kept going. Maradona played one more World Cup match for Argentina that year. Six hours before the team was slated for the semifinals, 
officials from the International Soccer Association held an emergency press conference. They had found a cocktail of illegal drugs in Maradona's urine, including five variants of ephedrine, a stimulant often used in weight loss treatments. Maradona protested. It wasn't recreational. He swore he wasn't using. It was just an ingredient in one of the energy drinks his trainer gave him, which was legal back in Argentina. The officials weren't buying it. They knew Maradona's history. He was immediately banned from the rest of the tournament. And that goal against Greece would be the last goal he ever scored in a World Cup game. He returned to Buenos Aires in disgrace once more. He told a local news network that he was finally, officially retiring from the game. I don't think I want another revenge, he said. My soul is broken. Diego Maradona swore he saw another camera flash behind the blackout curtains. His wife insisted it was just the sunlight bouncing off the glass outside their palatial home in Buenos Aires. Maradona shook his head, defiant as ever. He knew they were out there, watching him. He peeked out from behind the curtain himself, hoping to get a glimpse of the paparazzo hiding in his bushes. But the bastard moved too fast. The press had been hounding Maradona for months. And why wouldn't they? He was the biggest star in the history of soccer, an icon of the underclass and colonial resistance, who had spent the last few years trapped in scandal after scandal. Even the body that had once made him great had decayed into slovenly disrepair, made worse by all those years of drug abuse. And now they were surrounding his home, trying to snap a humiliating photo. But Maradona wasn't having it. He looked out from the blackout curtain once again. A crowd of reporters had gathered just beyond the steps of his home. And they weren't technically trespassing, but he didn't care. They were going to get what they deserved. He ran to the garage where he kept the guns. He grabbed an air rifle off the wall. He hid behind his Mercedes Benz as the automatic garage door rolled upwards. And then he popped up and opened fire. The reporters ducked for cover. Projectiles whizzed past him with alarming frequency. He pumped the air rifle and got ready to fire again. If you don't get out of here, Maradona shouted, we're going to start shooting real bullets. Four journalists claimed they were injured by pellets shot by Maradona. He was found guilty of assault with a weapon. And that came with a suspended prison sentence of nearly three years. But the once glorious hand of God still hadn't sunk to rock bottom. By the year 2000, Maradona's addictions had gotten so bad that he suffered a heart attack. Fidel Castro, who had befriended Maradona after the infamous World Cup victory over England, invited him back to Cuba to take advantage of the country's comprehensive healthcare system. Maradona later thanked Castro for his hospitality by getting the Cuban leader's face tattooed on his calf. Castro wasn't the only controversial politician that Maradona got close with. In his later years, he palled around with South American socialists Evo Morales and Hugo Chavez. He frequently criticized the presidency of George W. Bush as well as Israel's actions in Gaza the kind of things that made him just as many enemies as friends. And then, the hand of God had another Lucifer moment when he danced with Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro during Maduro's contested election campaign. There were some lines that even Maradona's most anti-imperialist fans wouldn't cross. And there were some Italians who still hadn't forgiven him either. 
the government came after Maradona in 2009, nearly 20 years after he left Naples, and claimed he owed them 37 million euros in unpaid back taxes and interest in the time he lived there. Meanwhile, the illegitimate son he'd fathered? That kid, Diego Sinagro, is now one of Italy's rising soccer stars in his own right. Eventually, Maradona acknowledged Sinagra as his own blood. She also acknowledged having three more kids with three different women during his time in Cuba. Plus that other one in Italy, and another one. Where was it? Who knows? At one point, one of the daughters from his first marriage joked that Maradona had enough offspring that they could form their own soccer team. And when Maradona died of a heart attack at the age of 60, the greatest soccer star in history was living alone struggling with a nervous disorder and barely taking care of his own basic needs. Once upon a time, he could have been a martyr, but he ended up a tragedy instead. And then, something happened after Maradona passed. Even after 30 years of seemingly endless embarrassment, the world still mourned his death. Argentina held a multi-day memorial service. His body laid in state at the president's mansion for all his fans to pay their respects. In Naples, they forgave his betrayal, even going so far as to rename the infamous Lucifer Stadium in his honor. In Barcelona, and the Boca Juniors played a friendly match dubbed the Maradona Cup on the one-year anniversary of his death, though even that was not without its controversies. At the end of the day, people don't really remember what you said or what you did. And Maradona said and did plenty of stupid shit, but what they remember instead is how you made them feel. And Maradona made the people feel like they had a champion like there was someone standing up for the little guy for once. And sometimes, that's all you need. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. It's a show of guys.